Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. You ever notice how many questions in life are difficult to answer? Or how many questions are so hard we actually have a hard time asking them? Well, if that's you, you're in good company. The prophet Habakkuk had a lot of hard questions to ask, and he wasn't always satisfied with the answers. This new series, we're going to create some room to sit with those unanswered questions and confront the hard answers in life. You know, a day like today, um, preachers are kind of caught in between a trap because it's not only Super Bowl Sunday, it's also the day before Valentine's Day. So I could either cater to Valentine's Day um, and uh, lose all of you who hate Valentine's Day, uh, or I could cater to Super Bowl and lose all those who hate sports. Um, so I'm going to go with Valentine's Day. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I know, you know, I'm going to be watching the Super Bowl tonight. It's going to be fun. But, but Valentine's Day, at least you've got an option to experience love, right? You may hate it, but let's just give love a chance, right, for just a few minutes. And one of the reasons I wanted to go into Valentine's Day, other than the fact that it helps my sermon illustration on the very front end, is because Valentine's Day is always full of these fantastic questions, right? There's all these questions that come out. You know, we've got the little hearts that have the questions on them, would you be mine? Uh, in fact, just the other day, I got a, a, a video. I won't show it to you, but it was from one of uh, Andrew's. Don't tell him I said this. He's out of the room now. It's fine. One of his former friends, uh, who happens to be a girl from uh, daycare, who sent him a message and was like, Andrew, would you be my Valentine? I don't have one, right? So this is, all these questions come up. In fact, there's really hard and difficult and awkward questions that come up. In fact, this morning, I just Googled um, the uh, you know, the cheesiest pickup lines that are out there, they're always full of those questions, always. Like, you know, do you know CPR? Because you just took my breath away, right? There's that one. Uh, you know, do you happen to have a Band-Aid? Um, that, one, that one's my favorite. You ever had that? You happen to have a Band-Aid? You know, because you knocked me down when I saw you and I busted up my knees, that, that kind of thing. Oh, this is a really good one. I found this one too. Are you a parking ticket? because you got fine written all over you, right? Isn't that great? These are just great. These are just deep, deep questions. But what's funny about it, it's usually the kids who have to ask all these questions. Adults, we kind of get past it at some point in time. Uh, you know, but kids, they're always confronted with the questions. And the truth is, is kids always ask the hardest questions imaginable. In fact, I sat for two hours in front of a group of eight other adults this, this week and was grilled with question after question after question. And... A few weeks ago, I was thinking about this. That experience right there compared to a few weeks ago when I went with my family to an arcade and Carrie's family was there. And Blanton, when I got there, Carrie said, Blanton's got a question for you. My blood pressure just skyrocketed in that moment. Like, I can sit for two hours in front of a group of my peers and be fine. But a kid comes up with a question, you know I'm not going to have an answer for that question, right? That's just reality. Quit, kids can come up with some crazy questions, and I, but I, I sat and listened to him anyways, right, for at least a few minutes. I had no idea what was coming. I sat and listened to him. My, my watch is telling me to breathe. I'm like, oh, it does know what's going on in my body, right? All these things, my blood pressure's up, and, and Blanton just sort of leveled with some questions, and truth was, I didn't have answers, but they were great questions, and they were such great questions, I wanted to share a few of them with you. So I sent a message to Carrie this week, and I was like, can you get Blanton to ask those questions again for y'all so that you can experience the, the spike in blood pressure the same way that I did? So we've got those, those Daniel, just play real quickly Blanton's questions. If you, you worked at a Samsung store, 
as a as a guard. Does that make you guardian of the galaxy? If people say time is money, does that mean the ATM is a time machine? ATM could stand for a time machine. Why are iPhone chargers just called chargers? Why can't they be called apple juice? Perfect, right? He could go on and on with these all day. Of course, he left off one of my favorites. Uh, if you throw a cat out the window, is that called kitty litter? That was terrible. That's, that's a terrible. That was a really good one, though. He should do that. In all seriousness, questions, uh, and kids have the hardest questions, but you know this. It doesn't take a kid to get a difficult question. We just came through a series where we were looking at all the first questions, and now for the next few weeks, uh, I didn't plan it this way, but we're going to look at some difficult questions, and there are difficult, difficult questions in Scripture. And particularly in the book of Habakkuk, there are some very difficult questions to deal with. But here's what I know about questions that are really difficult. Difficult questions are always there in a very particular place in our lives. They are there when the world that we believe in doesn't match up with the world that we see. Whenever these two things are out of balance, the world that we believe should be there gets out of balance with the world that we're seeing in front of us, this is where a difficult question starts to rise in our lives. Another way to say this, psychologists use this word, this is where incongruence rises up in our lives. So what is, what is incongruence? What does that even mean? What, what is that? And we got a little chart here to help you see exactly what incongruence is. It's this right here. It's when there's a separation between the perceived self which is what you're seeing with your eye, what you're seeing about yourself, gets separated off from the ideal self. There's a separation that occurs. And this can happen in a lot of different scenarios in life. But there are times in our lives where those two, which we would hope would overlap, the perceived self and the ideal self, we hope would come together and we'd see some overlap. They're not always going to be perfectly lined up, but we hope they would. And when they are in sort of an overlap stage, that's congruence. We're living in a congruent way. But psychologists tell us that from time to time, they get separated off. And when they get separated off in this way, and our perceived self doesn't line up with our ideal self, the way we see ourselves in the world versus who we believe we should be in the world, when those two things aren't in congruence, We've got this incongruence, right? That's, that's what happens. I'll give you an example. Some of you know my story already and know a piece of this, but the day that I brought home Andrew into my life and shifted to becoming just a married couple for 12 or 13 years to being a father, there was incongruence in my life, right? Automatically, I, I have experienced the incongruence. There was a separation between my perceived self and my ideal self. They grew apart because now I'm a father whether I like it or not, and for this longest time, I wasn't. Right? And it just became even worse over the next few days. My sister passed away that evening, and a little more separation occurred. Twelve days later, my father passed away, a little more separation. And in that moment of tragedy, what has happened? The self, which was pulled together in a fairly cohesive unit, gets pulled apart because of tragedy. Now, this happens in our lives often in the context of tragedy, because tragedy is the thing that reshapes the self. So prior to uh, September 29th, 2015, I was married to my wife. I'd been married to her for, let's say, 14 years. I don't actually know where we were in that stage, but let's just say 14 years at that point in time. I'd been married. We didn't have any children, and I was a sibling out of a sibling group of four, and my mother and father were still living, and that was my identity. And within 12 days, my identity shifted from that to being the father of an infant child, now a sibling to just two others, and I'm missing my father. 
And my sense of self is completely gone. Right? And, and in that space, I've got these identities separated out. And some of you have experienced similar things. We experience this on a whole lot of ways. Sometimes it has to do with grief and loss. Sometimes it can do with infertility, where we experience infertility and, and we've always idealized ourselves as mom or dad and we can't achieve that. And so we have a problem between our perceived self and our ideal self. Sometimes it can be job loss because we've identified ourselves around where we work. And when we lose that job, we lose that sense of self. Sometimes it can be sickness. It can be all kinds of transitions that we go into. But in our lives, and you've probably already experienced this, there are moments where these two realities separate there are moments where we pull them back together. This is separation and restoration, separation and reconciliation. This is where you get the phrase in life, developing a new normal. Right? Developing a new normal is all about taking the perceived self and the ideal self and pulling them back together, even though pulling them back together might be in a different spot than it was before. But what we're trying to do is develop that sense of new normal. And, and all throughout Scripture, we see this process of separation and restoration happening. Separation, restoration, incongruence in self. We see it over and over again. But the book of Habakkuk is one of those spaces where it just gets thrown in your face right from the very beginning. It's not hidden. It's not lying somewhere on the back burner. It's not like the undertone to everything that's being said. Habakkuk throws it out there at the very beginning. That's why that, that first verse, you know, verse 1 of Habakkuk says, these are the oracles of the prophet Habakkuk, what he saw. And then verse 2 goes right into this line of questioning. In fact, let's bring it back up on the screen so you can just see how dramatic this is. Oh, Lord, right? This is how he starts out. Oh, my God, how long am I going to cry out for help and you will not listen to me? How long is it going to be, God, that I continue to cry out for help and you don't listen. How long is it going to be that I cry out, hey, look, violence is happening, violence, destruction, all these things are happening in the street, and you choose not to save us? That's pretty direct. That's straight on the money. Habakkuk starts out of the gate like that, and he wants to set the entire sort of environment of his letter in this way. Where are you, God? My world looks nothing like I think it should. And here's the really painful part for most of us who are followers of Christ or who follow, follow God in some way. We think God should be doing something about it, and God's doing nothing. And that's what's so painful for Habakkuk in this space. My world is not looking anything like I have thought it should look like. My perceived reality, my ideal reality, they're separated as far from, from each other as they could be. And in that context, God, you are doing nothing about it. And if you ever, if, you know, honestly, we just want to stop here. You can stop listening to me. If you ever want a biblical justification for complaining to God, right here it is. Now, this is it. He starts out by complaining to God. If you want to go home, just complain to God all afternoon. Don't worry about reading the rest. Just read verse 2 right here. This is exactly what Habakkuk does. He just offers complaint after complaint to God. He launches into this. We've cried for help in the midst of a world torn apart. You're not listening. We've cried out that there's violence leading to death. You're not offering any salvation. And Habakkuk does in this moment what many of us do when we experience incongruence in the world. We look back to God because we think God is the one who should do something about it. We blame God. We offer blame to God because he, when terrible, unfair things happen in our lives and God doesn't respond, not only is there incongruence in our lives, there's incongruence in, in what we believe about God. 
We believe that God should be concerned. We believe that God should be active. We believe that God should be taking these steps. But what happens is what we see in God and what we believe about God are now separated. Not only what we believe about ourselves and see about ourselves, but also what we see about God and believe about God. And there's incongruence in that space. And that's why we turn on God in that moment, because what we believe and what we see don't match up. And of course, that's exactly what's happening in Habakkuk's world in this place. He's living somewhere around 600 B.C. in a world there was full of violence, in a world there was lots of corruption. There were all sorts of infights, and there were all sorts of uh, ungodliness that were taking place. And what we notice about this time period, which is really interesting, we get this from other prophets throughout the Bible. Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor uh, disciple or uh, prophets in the, in, the, in the Old Testament. Sorry, I couldn't get that out at all. It's just going to keep repeating in my head until I spit it out. He's one of the 12 minor prophets that are there, but there are a whole host of other prophets who speak about this same time period. And according to the other prophets who were living in this time period, God was going to do something really interesting. God was going to look at the people of Israel who were living in corruption and sin, and they were harming the, the, those who were on the outside of society over and over again. He was going to deal with the bad people by sending terrible people. Now, just let that sink in for a moment. But that's what the other prophets are saying. God's going to deal with bad people in the world by sending the terrible people in from the outside to deal with the bad people in the world. And, you know, some of the other prophets were like, that's what God said, we're going to do it. And Habakkuk is the one in the room who's like, uh, does anybody not see how stupid that is? That is really not the way it works. No, 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 no. Habakkuk stands up, and from the very beginning, he's like, that doesn't seem fair at all. In fact, I think his mom probably had an idea that this is how he was going to be because Habakkuk, as a word, means to embrace or to wrestle, right? And so in this space, Habakkuk is wrestling with God. He's like, no, no, we're not going to do that. That's not, that's not how things work. That's not how this needs to work out. And, and as he starts to explain his complaints, we start to see a few things that he believes about God that I think most of us probably believe about God. He believed this. He believed that because God's not acting, God must not care very much. God doesn't care all that much. And because God's not acting, he's not doing what he could do. And perhaps we would take that a step further to say what he should do. And that's really the last thing, because what I would also say that we see in this passage, and I'll unpack this in just a minute, is that what Habakkuk is seeing doesn't seem to be fair. God is not being fair in this moment. It doesn't appear like that's happening. In fact, let's just go through the few verses here to highlight this for you. But verse 2 highlights this problem right, right at, the, at the beginning. It says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not listen? You don't what? Care. I'm crying out to you over and over again. And God, you just don't seem to care. I cry out violence and you will not save. Again, you're not doing very much that you could do. I think you could do something. You could save us in this moment, Habakkuk says. But... He's not doing it, right? So he not only doesn't care, but as he presses on into verse 2, he's like, you're not doing what I think you could do. And of course, that just kind of spills out and out and out. Verse 3, he goes on, he says, but why do you make, see, make me see wrongdoing and why do you make me look at trouble? Destruction and violence, they're all in front of my face. Strife and contention arise. And here's what I know about you, God. God, you could change all this. I think you could. That's what I've learned about you through Sunday school. I think you could change all of this, and yet what I'm seeing in terms of my reality is different. And to just drive the point home, he just sort of stabs it at God. He takes it back to the law. This is, this is really interesting. He says, God, you gave us the law to be the ideal marking point. 
You gave us the law to make sure that everything else worked out in the world. And now look at your law. He goes on in verse 4. He says, So the law becomes slack. Justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous, and therefore judgment comes forth in a perverted way. He's like, even what you set up to be the ideal reality isn't even holding up anymore. It's not even helping anymore. The very thing that should have been a safety net in our life is not safety anymore. God, you're not acting to uphold your end of the bargain. Like, we've lived into this law, and even when we do, it gets perverted, it gets corrupted, it gets all of these things, and now you're not going to help. So God doesn't seem to care. God doesn't seem to do something when he, when he could do something. And then, he's not being fair. And this is the point that where Habakkuk really sort of jabs back at God and jabs at other prophets, for that matter. He says in verse 5, he says, Look, look at the nations and see. Be astonished, be astounded. For a work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. Again, this is probably Habakkuk quoting something that God has said. And he's throwing it back in God's face for just a minute. Look, you were told. This is, uh, he, he's sort of throwing this up. He goes on in verse 6. For I'm rousing the Chaldeans. Again, he's quoting God back to him. The fierce, impetuous nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. What God has been saying in this environment is, I'm sending this group of people, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, to attack you. I'm sending a terrible group of people to attack this bad group of people in this moment. This impetuous nation is what he calls them, right? They've gone all over the world. They've seized all of these things. And they don't find their strength in God. They find their strength in themselves. It's their own strength that they lean into. And this probably doesn't make a lot of sense to you, but guess what? It made no sense to Habakkuk. Habakkuk's like, that doesn't make any sense at all. You're rousing the Chaldeans. Why would you do this? He goes on in verse 12. He says, God, are you not from old? Like, you've lived a long time. You've seen a lot of things. You know how this world, world, world works. You know what's righteous and unrighteous, good and bad. You know all of these things. You're not going to die. Lord, you have marked them for judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for punishment? Are you kidding me? Them, the ones who have destroyed the earth. You're going to say they're going to be the ones who, mark, who are, who are going to bring punishment into the world. Your eyes, God, I don't, this is what I don't understand, God. Your eyes are too pure to behold the evil that they bring. You cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent? And when the wicked, and this is the line, we probably use this a lot, when the wicked swallow those who are more righteous than they. It's not fair, is it? Why would you let that happen, God? Why would you do that? You don't care. You don't want to do what you could do. And now this just seems really, really unfair. God seems to establish the right order of things. And in this moment, one of the most frustrating things, I think, for Habakkuk is God is silent up until this moment. He's silent entirely, and the only action that seems to be taking place in that moment is an action that seems unfair. He won't respond. He won't go back. He just performs an action that makes absolutely no sense. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. But I'm going to suggest this morning that a lot of us in this room, maybe those of you who are watching online, you probably can understand exactly where Habakkuk is coming from. If not now, there's been a season of your life where you understand exactly where he's coming from. Because we've all had those experiences in life where what we see doesn't match up with what we believe. 
and our life seems to be torn apart. The ideal could be, it could be about ourselves, right? There's, there's a distinction in ourselves and what we see in ourselves doesn't match up uh, with what we believe about ourselves. It could be about our spouse. What we believed about our spouse doesn't line up with what we're seeing in our spouse. It could be about our job or it could be about our role in the world. It, it could be a lot of different things. But our perceived reality is not matching up with our ideal reality, and that causes problems. And another way to describe this, another way that people, you know, particularly in faith traditions would describe this, this is a crisis of belief. I mean, it can even get to this point where you're offering questions about God, because what you believe about God is very different than what you're seeing God do in the world, and it creates this crisis of belief. And for far too long, here's what's happened. Christians have mistakenly believed that when doubt comes in, faith goes out. It's, that's often what happens. Whenever we experience doubt in our lives, we know it's there. We're very, we're very smart people. You're very smart people. What the assumption is, is that faith goes out, as if the opposite of faith is doubt. But if that was true, then here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to take this whole book of the Bible, Habakkuk, and just rip it out, right? Just go ahead and take it in your hand. It's not really big. It'll only take two pages of your Bible. And just rip it right out of your Bible. Because if that were true, then this doesn't have any room in our scripture. There's no room for Habakkuk's voice, which is entirely a voice of doubt in the world. But it's not true, right? So what do you do when what you see in the world and what you believe about the world don't really seem to line up when doubt seems to sneak in? Well, there, there are a couple ways that we naturally do this, apart from faith. A lot of times when this happens, where we have a distinction between our perceived self and ideal self, or the way we believe and what we see, we will deny reality. This happens a lot. We just deny it. We deny that that's actually going on. We want to live in the ideal world, and so we deny what is actually happening as if we're going to be able to go back and to live into the world that once was. Right? So we, we live in this denial. And the problem, of course, with that is it's usually short-lived because present reality has a way of continually sneaking in upon you. Reality just is a cruel thing that comes back to us over and over again, and it catches up to us. So denial doesn't really work. The other way that we can approach this is we can become disillusioned. And I see this happen a lot too, and maybe you've experienced this. We become disillusioned with faith. We become disillusioned with ourselves. We become, you know, we're, it's Valentine's Day, right? If you've had the, this, this sort of problem within relationships, you sometimes become disillusioned about relationships. You won't approach a relationship again because the perceived relationship, the ideal relationship, haven't matched up in the past. So you become disillusioned. You might become angry in that particular situation. Angry with God, angry with circumstances, all of those things. And we walk away. We walk away as if that's just going to take care of the situation. But again, even when we try to hide from reality, reality does what? Here I am, right? It's like Johnny streaking through the, the, the door in, in whatever weird movie that was from the 80s, 90s. I don't even remember when it was. Right? Here I am. This is reality right in front of us, right there. So, so you can't go this way. You can't go the path of denial. You can't go this way. You can't go the path of disillusion. I want to invite you on another path. I want to invite you to go down another path altogether, and it's the path that we're going to see over the next few weeks in Habakkuk. So you're going to have to stick with me on this one. I'm just going to set it up today, and I'm going to create some room for you to have doubt, and I'm just going to let it be that way. But as we go through this book, we're going to go on the same journey that Habakkuk went on, on a way that we can experience doubt, we can experience disillusionment, we can experience that, that situation of denial and anger and all the things that come with that tragedy, and we can move through. And, and this third way that I want to invite you to 
it, it causes us to sort of leave behind the binary of faith versus doubt. You know, so many of us live as if faith is the opposite of doubt. But there's a quote from Anne Lamott, which I love, and you've probably, many of you have probably heard this before. But Anne Lamott says that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but what? Certainty. Certainty is the opposite of faith, not doubt. The problem with the incongruence of our lives, the problem in your life when you experience a separation between your perceived self and your ideal self, is not that you're doubting, it's that you've lost certainty of who you are. You've lost it. And as human beings, we crave it. We want to live in certainty. We want certainty when we choose our partner. We want certainty when we're deciding where to live or where to build our house. We want certainty about whether we've made the right decision when it comes to our kids and our grandkids. We want certainty in all these areas. Did I choose the right degree path? Did I choose the right career path? Have I chosen and done well in my life with all the decisions I've made in business and in my personal home? I want certainty about that. We crave it. We desire it with everything that's within us. And certainty, my friends is the very thing that weakens our faith. It's the very thing that tears down our faith and it creates the crisis of incongruence in our lives. Certainty. Not doubt. Certainty. And you see this all the time. People who seem to have their lives together who have certainty in it are often the ones who could leave faith behind. They don't care. There's some of us who are like, I don't know if I've got it all together. I'm not sure. Right? Our certainty quotient is a little bit lower, and faith is a little bit higher. We all, we all have sort of to manage between those two things, but, but certainty is the thing that will keep us back. And in this crisis in your life, where you're craving certainty and wanting certainty, I want to invite you this morning into a much more difficult path but a path that I think is much more fruitful for where you are in your life and where you can be. And it's a path that will free you from certainty. It's a path that Habakkuk was calling us to. It's a path that says, I just want to trust God. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I don't, I don't have it all figured out, but I do know this. I can go to God with my uncertainty. I can go to God with my doubt. I can go to God when he's silent. I can go to God in all of these spaces. And the truth is, when we choose this path, the path is not probably going to get better overnight. In fact, next week, we're going to discover that Habakkuk just goes a little bit deeper in his waiting. It doesn't get better right away. But we've chosen this path because we know on the other side of it, our faith will grow. Our faith will become stronger. If you continue on this path, at some point, God is going to take your faith to a level that you have never experienced before in your life, to a level that you never thought was possible. It's a place of intimacy. It's a place of trust. It's a place of security that often gets grounded in seasons of doubt and incongruence. And every person of faith, of great faith that I've ever seen in my life, of mature faith, have lived in that season. In fact, the way that I would say it is this, is faithful followers grow deep when they discover the place where faith and doubt exist together. Where they live together in congruence. And they're okay with that. They've walked through the difficult seasons of life. They've walked through those challenges. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, who lost his brother 
in a terrible, horrific way. And then even when he came back from the dead and it changed his life, lost him again when he was rushed off to heaven. And James, who's experienced all kinds of persecution, James, who experienced loss and trials, he's the one who says this in his epistle to us. He says, brothers and sisters, can I get pastoral for a minute? Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many types. Because you know this, you know that the testing of your faith does something. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance has to finish its work so that you can become mature and complete, not lacking in anything. It's living through these moments where the maturity of your faith is grounded and found. And you'll be able to grow in there. It's not, it's not God's desire that sh you should walk through these seasons. But when you do walk through these seasons, we don't have to walk through them alone. We don't have to walk through them without the presence of God. God is with us. God is guiding us. God is there to hear our complaints. He's there when our heart cries out to him. And right now, as I end, some of you are there in chapter 1. That's where you're at. I know it. And you just got to let that cry out. Cry out to God in the midst of that turmoil. Letting out all the frustrations, letting out all the, the ways in which your perceived life and your ideal life don't match up. And just start wondering where God is. It's okay to be there. It's okay to say, God, I'm, I'm wondering about this. I'm wondering what's happening behind the scenes here. I'm wondering why you're doing this. I'm wondering what you're doing. I'm wondering where you are in all of this. Look, you may not like being in that space, but I just want to acknowledge for you that if you're in that space, it's okay to be there. And what I want you to know is you don't have to be there alone. You can be there with others, other brothers and sisters in Christ. You can stand in that space. And there's a legitimacy to being in that space that I just need you to hear. Like I said, next week we're going to press on a little bit further. This week is wondering. Next week is going to be waiting. I'm sorry you have to wait till next week to find out that you got to wait some more. And then by the time we get to the end of this series, we're going to get to the space of worshiping. And what we find about worshiping is that circumstances don't change in Habakkuk's life when he finds a way to worship God. He finds a way to worship God in the context of his unchanging circumstances. So you can walk this journey of incongruence. You can kind of go down that path. But as you go down it, what I want to encourage us to do in our wondering is to find a way to honor God by crying out to God. We're not going to be happy with God, but we can still communicate with God. We can pull our real and our ideal back together. And this is where you're going to have to be in preparation for where we're going. Pulling your real and ideal back together may mean this. It may mean that they come back in a different spot. Where you were before, where I, where I was prior, I'll use my own example, was September 29th, 2015, is not where I was. October 13th, 2015. It's different. But there's life. There's a way to once again pull the perceived reality and the ideal reality together in a new way. And we're constantly battling that. We're constantly moving that. We're constantly figuring it out. And I don't know what it's going to look like. But I know wherever you step and wherever you're able to start pulling those realities back together, 
God is there. God is calling you and directing you. Let's be Habakkuk's today. Let's be willing to wrestle. I love both of those terms. Wrestle is the one that I really leaned on today, but, but embrace is also a pretty powerful one, right? And there's a sense in which, God, I am wrestling, but I am just holding on for dear life because I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how it's going to all work out. But today, as we walk out, let's walk out in that, that embrace, in his embrace. Would you stand with me? If you would with me just really quickly, just take a deep breath in. Let that out. One more time. God, as we breathe in the breath of life, we're reminded that you were the one who first breathed the breath of life into us. You created us and formed us. Each and everyone who's in this room, each and everyone who's watching online, you created us with identity and purpose and meaning in this world, and you have grounded us in that and surrounded us with communities of strength and beauty. And God, there are times when that sense of self and sense of who we are and sense of what we are to do in this world gets disrupted. And this morning, I just want to lift those up before you. I want to recognize before you this morning, there is a tear in our lives. And Father, we need you to pull us back together. God, there are times right now where we don't see you working. There are times right now where we don't understand why you're working in the way you are, why you're moving. We don't understand the method to the madness, God, and it seems unjust and it seems just outright wrong. God, I want you to hear us there because it's frustrating and it's hard. The brokenness of our world doesn't seem fair, God. doesn't seem like you're active, God. God, I know. I know you're big enough to hear all these things. I know you're big enough to bear all that burden. As we wrestle with you, as we try to embrace you, God, I ask this morning that you would embrace us. I ask this morning, God, that you would hold on to us and that you would pull us back together even when the world around us doesn't seem to be coming together. Spirit of God, as we sing this final song, as we just sort of soak in this moment for just a minute, I ask that you would be the one who speaks to us. I know there'll be words that we sing. I know there'll be sort of offerings that are, that are presented from this space, but but Spirit, I just want you to speak to the hearts of your people for the next few minutes. I want you to be the one who offers change and transformation in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.